Let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 7 tonight. This will be the seventh in the series of messages on the life of Gideon. The first sixth in the series have covered the call of Gideon, God's divine call given to Gideon and his lapses in faith and desiring to walk by sight rather than by trusting in the providence of God. Now, the remainder of the series will be dealing with the selecting of Gideon's army and the battle that came to pass. Judges chapter 7 tonight and verses 1 through 8, and we'll entitle the message tonight, The Lord's Testing of Gideon's Army. Then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Harod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water, and I will try them for thee there. It shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people into the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that laugheth of the water with his tongue as a dog laugheth, <coughs> Him shalt thou set by himself, and likewise every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. The Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites unto thine hand. And let all the other people go every man into his place. So the people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, into his tent, and retained these three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Now, if I were a doubting man, as now I'd begin to doubt. Having an army assembled of prospective soldiers, 32,000 in number. And when you see the numbers, the flesh begins to have its expectations raised. But the Lord said, there's too many here. And he said, everybody that is afraid to fight, he said, send them home. So they took a roll call, and 22,000 left. That's quite a church exodus, isn't it? <laughs> quite a church exodus. The majority leaves. 10,000 left. Well, still a pretty good number if you don't look at the Midianites. The Lord said this is still too many. 
He says, I want you to take them down by the river. I want you to watch how these men drink. And the ones that drink like a dog, that is, they cup up the water with their hands and lick it with their tongue, he said, you set them aside. And all of those that bow down on their knees and prostrate and drink with their mouth right out of the water, he said, you put them on the other side. So out of 22,000, or rather 10,000, 300 of them drank in one fashion, and 9,700 drank by dropping flat on their bellies, drinking the water out of the river. Well, Gideon may have thought, uh-huh, well, all right, I've got 9,700. No, you only have 300. Send the 9,700 home, and it's by these 300 is the chosen instruments that I have chosen to overcome the Midianites. A text that we might use in connection with our message tonight is Zechariah 4.6, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how God gets his victories. Sometimes we may wonder why God keeps so many of his congregations small. Most of the cases I find that God's people want to see a church grow. They want to see it people added. And evidently our Lord knows that our motivations are not as pure as we would like. And it may be more that we could say, I could grow better if we had a church full. That is, I could just feel like we were closer to the Lord. And that may, that feeling that we get may be of the flesh rather than of God. So God, I'm sure, has his reasons for keeping the congregations of his people at the point. And we must learn the lesson tonight that it is not the number that God needs to succeed with. He's looking for something here, and that's what we want to try to discover what that might be. Now, the first thing that I would call to your attention tonight in this narrative is that the Lord does not depend upon numbers. He can save by many, or he can save by few. Numbers do not bear any consequence with the Lord. Go back to 1 Samuel, or over to 1 Samuel, rather. Chapter 14. And verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God is not restrained by numbers. Oh, that denominations could learn that today. The denominations that boast in their numbers say we've got 13.6 million on our church row. We're the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. As if then that God has more freedom to work through 13.6 million than he has of a smaller number elsewhere. Always been an interesting thing, that figure that our particular denomination has thrown out. You can't find about eight or nine million of them on a given Sunday. Out of that 13.6, the average attendance in our denomination of all the churches 
is about four and a half million show up on a given Sunday. Where are all the others? I'd rather have one person I could depend upon than a thousand unstable people to work with. And so our Lord may save by many, or he may save by few. It's in his purpose to do so. He's not restrained by either. Look on over in another companion passage in Second Chronicles. The people of God in the Old Testament knew this very well. Second Chronicles chapter 14. Second Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 11. Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let no man prevail against thee. You see, the people of God of old, they knew it was not the number that restrained God. One of the side enjoyments I have had of being your pastor here for four and a half years is that this is the first church where I have ever pastored out of my four pastorates in 27 years. This is the first church which I did not have to deal with that number board hanging up on the side in the front of the church. And I appreciate that. In the churches where I have pastored, in the churches where I've gone to, the spirit of expectation in any service was regulated by how many was posted on the Sunday school register. If the attendance was down, God wasn't there that day. Now, you get up and try to preach to a group of people in a preaching service when the Sunday school attendance was lower than it was last Sunday. Everybody, what's the matter? We're just failing. I appreciate not having to deal with that board. That's been the downfall of many ministers, though. I've known some that have been opposed to that Sunday school board who have fought it out and got put out of their churches because of that board standing up there. So in the churches where I pastored, the people wanted it. I didn't make it an issue of, of, of faith. But still, oh, how it affected their ability to worship and to come before the Lord. It was as if if that board number was up, <clears throat> then the Lord was there, and the Lord was going to bless that day. But if the number was down, why, well, the Lord, he can't do anything. And God helped the congregation that went off to see God work, and it rained on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and the attendance is down. Oh, can't expect much to happen today. <laughs> Not going to be many there. And that is not an exaggeration, my people. To some of you who were never raised in that environment, that is not an exaggeration. That is what goes on in church after church after church. People go and their spirits are lifted or depressed by the number of the people that are there. Far better to go and meet with God and have Him commune with your soul than to meet with a thousand and have nothing but pats on the backs by men. God does not depend on numbers. 32,000 soldiers showed up when the call went out to fight. The Lord said, there's too many. If we gain the victory, 
then Israel will attribute it to the force of their own numbers and their own strength. The tendency of human nature is to forget God and to glory in self. Don't forget that. That is a tendency. I don't care whether it's in the darkest heathen or whether it is in the most enlightened saint. There is a tendency within our human nature to forget self or to forget God and to glorify self. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. Here God brings out this tendency. He is delivered the people through the wilderness, and now he's giving them some warnings and some exhortations. Verse 11, Deuteronomy 8, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Prosperity is not always a blessing. Not always a blessing. Who led thee through... Did I read verse 14? Yes. Verse 50. Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. That's what happens when people forget God. There is an innate tendency that when one is blessed by God to forget where the blessings come from and attribute it to something that they must have done themselves to bring it to pass. Verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day, that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. I cannot give it as an absolute statement of fact. But as an observer of the religious world, I have observed that there is sort of a graph in which the churches who set out to serve God to some degree of commitment, and God sends in great numbers of people, and the church grows and grows. And then the people begin to think, it's our doings that's bring this about, and then there'll be a church split. I believe that's almost invariable on the horizon, and I believe it's an application, I won't be dogmatic in every case, but an application, this principle right here. God says, if you forget me after all I've done for you, he says, I'll send judgment into your midst, and I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. And that almost invariably happens in church life, is that men 
When they're blessed of God, they begin to honor the blessings and say, it's because of what we're doing that we are being blessed. And God says, no, if you forget me in that way, then I'm going to destroy you and disperse you among the nations. And that means separation or division. And that invariably happens in churches. Salvation is not of human work and human effort, lest any man should boast. We know that. Jonah was taught that lesson in the belly of the whale when he was taught that salvation is what? It's of the Lord. It's not of man's doing. Salvation is entirely by grace, so that no man can boast in the result that comes to pass, because it's been brought to pass by God Almighty. And God has designed this thing wherein his glory exists so that no flesh will be permitted to glory in his own presence in the flesh. But if a man's going to glory, he must glory in the Lord himself. So God will not depend upon numbers. I know the, all the arguments I used to use. Well, God doesn't, he didn't, if he doesn't depend on numbers, why didn't he name a book after? One of my arguments that I used against a man who, uh, back in my days, when I was very influenced by numbers, uh, he was bringing all this out to me. And I said, well, that's not true. God named the whole book in the Bible, the book of Numbers. And God's obviously interested in numbers. And then I would point out, he even recorded how many got saved on the day of Pentecost. And I would say, how many got saved in your church last Sunday? And if the fellow couldn't say anything, and I'd say, see there, God's not with you. We had so many saved. We had so many baptized. We had so many in Sunday school. God's with us. It seems like the logic is with that position, isn't it? So you see then what Gideon is up against. He's got his nation looking to him, and now then he's able to rally 32,000 people, and then God whittles them down in just a short period of time. He's only got 300. Where's the logic at in all of this? It's going the other way. The second thing I'd point out about the narrative tonight is that the Lord refused to use those who were fearful. He refused to work through the instrument that was unstable and was fearful. He sent them away. This was not because God just thought about doing this on the moment. This was in accordance with a revealed law, which he had previously given. Go back to Deuteronomy now, chapter 20. God had given... Matters about warfare, of how to select the armies in Israel out of all the tribes. Deuteronomy chapter 20. In my particular Bible, the heading of it is the law of warfare. It gives who can be a soldier in the army of Israel. Let's uh, go down in uh, verse, uh, well, when verse, verse 1, I guess, would be good enough. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not a fought. Afraid. Don't be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. It shall be, when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and that is, unto the soldiers, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you. 
to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicated it. That is, if here is a man who's built a new home, and he hadn't got the move in yet, he was exempted from military duty. Verse 6, And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard, and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat it. The man just put out the crops. They haven't come to harvest yet, then he was exempted from military duty. Verse 7, What man is there that hath betrothed a wife, or engaged a wife, hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. Here's a man who's just engaged. He's classified what I was uh, later, earlier in my life, 4F. I still remember that precious classification. That meant if you were married, your military obligation then was not as, as likely. And I came awful close going to Vietnam. In fact, I've related how I was already in being inducted, had my uh, written test over with, waiting for my physical exam, and John Kennedy, before we had our physical exam, signed the law exempting military men from duty. From that time on, I went from 1A to 4F. And now then, all that's changed with a voluntary army. But if a man has a prospective marriage upcoming... He was exempted from Israel's military duty. Verse 8, And the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, Now watch, What man is there that is what? Fearful and faint-hearted. Now look why God is exempting this man. He's just not considering the one individual. Look what he's doing. Lest let him go and return into his house lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. That is, fearful people, those who are distrusting, have a tendency to affect others. And the spirit begins to spread throughout the army. So God says we want the brave and the courageous, and all of these others are exempted. So when God was telling Gideon here, now then you exempt the fearful, then he was not introducing some new principle. He'd already set it forth in his law. 22,000 men then proved to be fearful, and they left. Revelation chapter 21 and 20 verse 8 says that the fearful and the unbelieving are in the same category. That is, they are cast into the lake of fire. I don't put the two here to think that every soldier who was fearful was a non-believer. But it does put a fearful person and an unbelieving person in the same category in Revelation 21.8. Fear is unbelief. Fear is a distrust of God's ability to control the providential circumstances of your life. God exhorted Abraham not to fear. Do you remember that? Genesis 15.1, he assured him that he would be his shield and his re-reward. That means that God would defend him from anything in front of him, and God would take care of what was coming up behind him as well. That's the way that he would set his battalions in the army in, the, in that particular perspective. So God said, don't fear, Abraham, I'll take care of you. The Lord exhorts Israel not to fear. Our Lord, on various occasions, rebukes the fearfulness of his own disciples. We've mentioned those in the storm and so forth. 
So God will not work through unstable, fearful, untrusting individuals to conquer his enemies. Now, the third thing that I would point out in our narrative, as we go back now to the book of Judges, chapter 7, is that now he tests the 10,000 remaining ones by the manner in which they drank water out of the stream. And notice in verse 5, He brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself, likewise every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their what? To their mouth were 300 men. Now, I gather that this is the picture, that they took their hand, went down into the water, and lifted it up, and alertly were able to drink. That is, their attention was on something other than just having their thirst satisfied. But those who bowed down on their knee and drank out of the water, as I have done on many occasions, not recently, I assure you, there was a time in this country in which that I had no hesitancy whatsoever be out on a stream of water, and if it was at the end of a clear gravel bar, I could be assured I could go down there and not receive contamination and get down there and drink that water when I was out fishing, but not so anymore. I won't do that in our polluted land today. And so our Lord divides them into two categories. Now, the 300 that stooped down and caught up water in the palm of their hands and licked it in their, in their mouth, they were ready to go in the pursuit of the enemy. That is, this is the way that they would conduct themselves in battle. What kind of a soldier, if he was in enemy territory, would just lay down his sword and lay on his face and be drinking, he would expose himself to instant death. These were alert people, and there is a moral lesson here as well as a physical lesson set forth in these two classes of men. First, those who bowed down upon their knees and drank out of the water unprepared were occupied, now listen, primarily with their thirst. They were occupied with self. That was their biggest concern of the moment, was satisfying their thirst. That was the all-important thing to them. But the other class, the 300 who lapped water like a dog, they were gratifying their thirst, but that was a secondary matter. Do we see that? Their primary concern was what God had called them to. And that was the preparation for the battle. So here we not only see the physical difference between the two categories of soldiers, but there's a moral difference here. The 9,700 soldiers represent self-gratification. Primarily, I'm in this thing to see that my thirst is taken care of first and then the battle. And the 300 represent self-consecration. I will remember it by those two words. 
self-gratification and self-consecration. The 300 were totally consecrated to the call which God had given them to go forth into battle. The 9,700 were, were bold. They were not fearful, but they were not totally committed to the call, for they were primarily concerned about number one's thirst being taken care of and in the battle. And this is why our Lord chose the 300, is those who were consecrated to do the will of God totally, and then their needs were of secondary importance. Now, my people, if you sat under the ministry of God's exposition of the Word of God, as you have so faithfully here for the last four and a half years, if you're here for purposes of self-gratification, you'll be weeded out. You will be weeded out. But if you're here as a consecration of your life to the honor and the glory of God, there will be some food set before you on the table. And this is what goes on with what is known as a searching ministry. This is why that unless it's in times of great revival and pouring out of the Spirit of God, that those type of churches which sit under an expository ministry which covers the whole counsel of God week in and week out, it will separate those who are seeking self-gratification from those who are seeking self-consecration. Well, I don't want you all right, Pastor. You do a good job in the, in the, in the Bible, but you just don't have a big enough choir. And, and you don't have a good enough song service. And uh, you don't have the lights turned just right. doesn't take long to spot them. You see that they're interested in their own first and not to the call of God. Oh, my people, how did the early Christians make it in the catacombs where they had no lights, where they had to whisper they couldn't even sing out loud, lest the Roman government find them and put, to de put them to death? How do people worship God behind the iron country? curtains where persecution is extensive? How do they do it without a song leader, without a great display? They have to go underground to do it. And yet, from all that I can tell, that's where God is primarily moving at in our world today, is in the underground circles. And it's a thrill to hear what is going on in those secret resources in the lives of God's people. Don't be led astray by thinking that all the pomp and circumstance in the large buildings with the large cathedrals and the crosses on top of them, that that's where God is working at. Don't, don't be led astray by that. I'm not saying that God cannot work there and that he is not working there, but don't say that that's the only place that God has restrained himself to work in. Self-gratification or self-consecration. God chose the 300 who denied self and made his call the first thing in their life. Now, if we would serve God to the full and be his instrument to work through, something will be more called for than a mere assent to belief. 
it will involve total consecration of our life unto God. Our Lord said that those who would follow him must crucify self, that is, they must deny self and take up the cross and follow him. And that's what these 300 were doing. Yes, they had to have water, but water was not their primary pursuit with a little bit of God's call thrown in. The call of God to worship and to glorify him was the primary thing that was set forth first. And that's what we have tried to do here in our congregation, is to keep the glory of God before you. And whatever else comes along is just icing on the cake. But if God doesn't see best to send it along, I'll tell you, he's working nevertheless. For he is separating those who are seeking gratification in the flesh from those who are seeking gratification in God and God alone. The true attitude that the believer ought to have is that of Isaiah. When he said, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, send me. What about Paul? For me to live is what? He is Christ. That's the motivation. Denial of self. Whatever it takes, Lord, I want to live for Christ. It is presenting ourselves completely over to his disposal to use us in whatever way that his purposes determine that he will do so. I conclude with this summation. This is what God wants out of you and is what he wants out of me tonight. Not what we have, but what we are. Do you catch that? Not what we have in the form of gifts, but what we are. He wants us, not just our possessions. So let Christians then give themselves up unto the Lord. And when you give yourself up to the Lord, you will not have any problem determining what you shall give to the Lord. Could I give you a closing help? I hope that you will observe this, those of you which are beginning to start out on your Christian walk. Before you try to settle how much of your time, how much of your money, and how much of your service you're going to commit to the Lord, settle this, how much of myself am I going to commit to the Lord? And I'll tell you, Brother David, when that's settled, then it no longer comes up. How much am I going to give of my money to the Lord? That's an automatic. Hmm? How much of my time am I going to commit to the Lord? How much of my service am I going to commit to the Lord? Now, you look at the mature Christians that God has brought into your pathway as a Christian yourself. And you will see that there is something almost as normal as breathing and eating in their life when it comes to their giving of their finances, the giving of their time, and the giving of their service. They have struggles. They have heartbreaks. They have disappointments. They have the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But these are not areas in which that we have just mentioned time and finances and service which give them a great deal of trouble. Why? 
because they've settled it this way. Lord, I'm yours. My money is your money. Amen? My time is your time. I think there's a song that Rudy Valley used to sing. Is that right? Hmm? Rudy Valley used to sing a song, My Time is Your Time. I can always tell those who are over 65 years old are nodding their heads. <laughs> I got you, didn't I? <laughs> the rest of you have never heard of Rudy Valley. <laughs> he said, well, how do you know him? Well, I, he was long before my time too, but I remember, have to remember that song. This is the whole issue here. When God has you, He has your pocketbook, he has your clock, and he has your schedule of that day. He's got your service. Self-consecration to God solves the issue, how much should I give, how much should I, my time should I spend in the Lord's work, in the public assemblies of the saints, in handing out tracts, in witnessing for him. All of this falls in line when this matter of giving of oneself that's why in many churches you, you go, and I remember back in my early days in which that I'd have people that every other Sunday they felt it necessary to come and rededicate their life over and over and over again. And they'd stand after and testify, Oh Lord, I, I, I need help to be a better Christian. Pray for me that I'll be able to start tithing. Pray for me that I'll be able to start attending the church more regularly. Pray for me that I'll do this. We'd have prayer for them two weeks later. Here they'd come again. Just almost like a Roman mass. Coming back. Lord, help me do this. Help me do this. Help me do this. Now, what was their real problem? They had not yet totally given themselves to the call of God to do battle. They were like those who bowed down. The 10,000. Oh, they were bold enough to attend and identify with the people of God. They say we're ready to do battle. But it was of secondary importance in their life. Their primary concern was how is self going to come out of this thing? You ever ask that question? If you're still asking it, it means you need to go home again tonight and get along with God and say, do you have my all? For when self is denied and it is put on the cross... It no longer asks, Lord, you call me into the battle. How am I going to come out in the battle? Because when God calls us to do battle, we don't know whether we're going to be spared or not. Hmm? Those of you that served our countries in wars, did you know for sure that you were going to come back on that ship or that airplane? You didn't know that. You went over there with a call and a response to do your duty for your country. And that's the role the child of God should take if he is going to be a vessel of instrument in God's hands. Not fearful of what the outcome is going to be and not concerned about what's going to happen to self. If I was concerned about that, I tell you, I'd be in another profession a long, long time ago. I don't know what today is going to have. I don't know what another week's going to bring forth. 
right now we're having a very enjoyable pastorate with you. I thank God for that. I thank God daily for you people. And I don't exaggerate when I make that statement. You've been very kind and loving toward me. But I'd better not get all puffed up and think that can't change. I know better. I know what flesh can do. I know what this flesh can do. I know what your flesh can do. I don't know how this thing's going to come out. I just know what's going to come out on the other side of the river. <laughs> That's all I know. And so I haven't been promised that I'm going to have just a little safe, secure little pastorate. It's just going to go on and on and on. Don't have anything to worry about. Have your needs taken care of. Have a good group of people to preach to who love you and pray for you. I get resumes ever so often from ministers wanting a church. Don't know why they send them to me. <laughs> they think, I guess, in my travels that I find out where churches are, and I do. And it's interesting what some of them write. They'll give their qualifications, and then they'll specify what kind of a church they'll want. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I want a little church out in the country. 300 people, $45,000 a, a year. Don't want the city traffic to, to contend with. Don't want to have all the pollution. Want this, this, you say you're exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. That's the kind of request that I get. Isn't that something? The soldier choosing what the battle conditions are going to be like. The soldier choosing what the battle conditions are going to be like. We don't know what a day is going to bring forth. God has been gracious to give us peace in our midst to a varying degree, and we're thankful for it. But that doesn't mean He's through sifting. Doesn't mean He's through. And there's still, if there is self-gratification in any of us, put it down, it's going to be sifted, it's going to be tested, and it's going to be tried through the application of the Word of God. What you hear and what you learn here in this church from your pastor and from the other teachers, if it be the truth of God, I call to your awareness this day, God will try you to see whether or not you will adhere to that truth which you have been received. He'll put it to the test. For this is not intellectualism. This is God taking his truth and saying, now then, this is my truth. What are you going to do with it? And he'll set up the circumstances to try it. And he'll turn up the heat and the fire. And you know what's going to happen? If you're his, the impurities are going to bubble to the surface and you're going to come forth as pure gold. There's going to be impurities there. So the lesson that we can learn from Gideon's army is that God is looking for self-consecration, not self-gratification. And he will set up the circumstances to determine who he will work through and who he will not. I want to be used of the Lord. What about you? Let's stand together tonight.